Just a word before I get to talking about today's film, which is Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, that I will be talking about elements of the film's plot, including its ending. That will be spoilers for those of you who may not have seen that film. So if you haven't seen Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, my advice is to stop now and go watch the film. It's a great movie. And then come back after you've seen the film. Now on with the review. Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read there anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out my other podcast. It's called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, and you can listen to that by finding the link to my website. That's at Quipster.net, covering all the brand new movies. Today I'm going to be getting into the second of a, what's going to be a six-part series looking at Star Trek films. I would say of the 1980s, but only three of the six actually were released in the 1980s. Obviously, the last episode we covered 1979's Star Trek The Motion Picture. We're going to continue with the follow-up, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Some people will call it Star Trek The Wrath of Khan. It's a film that came out in 1982, and it is a PG-rated film. It predates PG-13. It definitely would be PG-13 today because it does contain a lot of violence for a Star Trek film. The runtime is an hour and 53 minutes, bringing back the cast William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, James Doohan, Walter Koenig, George Takei, and Nichelle Nichols. A newcomer, well, he's not a newcomer, he's been in Star Trek before, one of the episodes, Ricardo Montalban is a co-star of this film, and the newcomers, B.B. Besh, Merritt Buttrick, Paul Winfield, and Kirstie Alley. Nicholas Meyer is the director and the screenplay credited to Jack B. Sowards. Now, before the ponderous space odyssey that was Star Trek, the motion picture, before that opened, Paramount had already been in talks for a follow-up, but... Due to the costly production problems they experienced with the motion picture, the sequel was going to have to be a modestly budgeted film, and it was going to be made by Paramount's television division, with an eye toward releasing it on television and perhaps a theatrical release overseas. Depending on the quality, though, Paramount might consider a theatrical release in North America as well. And that led to a discussion with Paramount television newcomer. His name is Harv Bennett. He was a producer for high-profile television shows in the 70s like The Mod Squad, The Six Million Dollar Man, and The Bionic Woman. And Paramount wanted Bennett to come up with a better movie than the first one, but at a fraction of the cost. Bennett, though, had not seen an episode of Star Trek. So his first impulse was to decline the offer. But his children loved the show, and they begged him to reconsider He did get up to speed in the screening room. He watched all 79 episodes of the original series. To Bennett, as he was watching these episodes, he found that the appeal of Star Trek came through the interplay of its characters and their moral and ethical dilemmas, much more so than battles or space travel. He would try to guide the drama back to the actors and not toward the epic spectacle that was its predecessor. Now, Bennett looked through episodes to build a story upon among the 79 He settled on season one's Space Seed. Bennett liked this episode primarily because Kirk had a formidable villain to fight in it, something that viewers and critics felt that the first film lacked. So Star Trek II would also offer a more personal look at Kirk 
and his life. He's going to be confronting age, his sacrifice of his family for his career, and the reality of loss in the face of adversity. Audiences should reconnect with these characters instead of getting lost gawking at the vast unknown of the universe as they did with the motion picture. Now, the Space Seed episode of the original show, it features the Enterprise discovering a derelict spaceship called the SS Botany Bay. It contained mostly people who were in suspended animation, and their leader is Khan Noonien Singh. He's the mastermind among a breed of eugenically engineered superhumans who became warlords in the late 20th century. They took over about a third of the Earth. There were eugenic wars that ended up erupting, and Khan and his people ended up making their escape into space. Ever the warmonger, Khan attempts to take over the Enterprise, and he's going to use it to go on his quest to conquer worlds yet again. Kirk ends up winning in that skirmish, and he banishes Khan to a planet called Seti Alpha 5, this dangerous but habitable planet that he can use his cunning and strength to spend his lifetime taming. Now, Bennett's script outline as a follow-up to Space Seed was called Star Trek II, The War of the Generations. In it, he planned a rebellion to erupt on this Federation planet that requires Kirk and the Enterprise's attention. Kirk ends up rescuing a woman that he was once in love with back in the day, and he finds that one of the leaders of the rebellion is the son that he never knew existed. Kirk ends up getting captured, and then he's sentenced to death by that son, But in the interim, it's discovered that Khan is the source of the rebellion, and that forces Kirk and Sun to join forces to defeat Khan. And the ending has Kirk's son become a member of the Enterprise crew. Now, due to generational elements, Bennett would use this to explore themes about sacrifices made pursuing a Federation career over family pursuits. To help him with the actual script, though, Bennett ended up hiring a TV writer and a Star Trek fan in his own right named Jack B. Sowards. As Sowards helped with the script, he noticed that Spock was not anywhere to be found in the outline. So Bennett had to explain that Leonard Nimoy had no interest in returning. He was not going to be available for the follow-up to Star Trek. Now, it was Sowards' suggestion that they needed Nimoy, and that he might return if they gave his character a glorious death in this sequel. He envisioned it happening maybe a third of the way into the story at the end of Act 1, shocking audiences in a way that is kind of similar to Marion Crane in Hitchcock's Psycho. So they pitched this to Nimoy, and he consented. He liked the idea. He was going to appear on the condition of his death, along with a negotiated deal that he would strike with Paramount for two additional acting projects and films that they had down the line. Now, in this early version of the script, Swords introduced a Federation weapon called the Omega System. Now, the rest of the script was very similar to the finished movie, except the aforementioned death of Spock happening earlier. Instead of SETI eels, they were more like these alien spiders, and the woman of Kirk's past was revealed to be Dr. Janet Wallace from one of the episodes of the TV show called The Deadly Years, and her son was much more integral to the plot. And now in this draft, there was a Vulcan, a new Vulcan named Savick, just like in the finished film, except here it was going to be a male character. Most male Vulcan names start with the letter S, females with the letter T, although there are some exceptions. There was going to also be a romantic subplot taking place between Kirk and a young female bridge officer. And as they were pitching forward ideas, the Omega system ended up turning into what we know now as Genesis. And that was the suggestion of art director Michael Miner, who 
had an interest on his own in terraforming, and he suggested that this might be a better weapon. Bennett liked this because it was a weapon that was going to produce life, and that reinforced the TV show's optimistic approach toward technology and space exploration. Why would the Federation have weapons that were meant to annihilate planets? They would actually want to terraform a planet, and it made much more sense, although that weapon could be used to annihilate the planet if done on a planet that had life on it. Now, Bennett also worked with another screenwriter after this. His name was Samuel Peoples, and he had some Star Trek scripting experience for the TV shows. Now, Peoples' script produced a lot of major story revisions. He traded out Khan and his wife altogether from the story. He was going to make them alien beings, and there were a host of new characters and different conflicts. And when Bennett read it, he knew that Peoples' script was just not going to work. But they really could not delay any longer without a writer's help because special effects department needed a script and they needed it within about three weeks or the movie might never happen because Paramount did not want a repeat of the first film by waiting and delaying and paying these technicians to continue to wait around for a script that was yet to be written. Now, as the visual effects budget was a concern, Bennett ended up bringing in a director of popular commercials named Robert Salen. He was also a friend of Bennett since their days back in UCLA film school, and he gave him the job of producer. And the first order of business was to map out all of the effects that were going to be produced using this intricate storyboarding process, along with the art director, Michael Miner. So they would have it all planned out beforehand. Douglas Trumbull was unavailable to return, so Salen ended up hiring Industrial Light and Magic. And they worked wonders with Paramount before, just the year before, in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And one thing that would be clear, though... They wanted to make the characters the forefront of the film. They did not want the special effects to be the main focus this time out. Now they just needed that completed script and a director to bring it all together. Now most of the people who were offered the director job ended up passing. They were uninterested in either filming a sequel or making science fiction or even a Star Trek feature, especially one that might be a television movie. Paramount executive Karen Moore, she was a friend of novelist and director Nicholas Meyer. He had made a film in 1979 called Time After Time that was a critical hit, even if it wasn't a big commercial hit. She suggested that he meet with Bennett to discuss a screenplay project that Bennett was struggling to nail down with Star Trek. Now, even without a deal in place and without familiarity with Star Trek, Meyer ended up looking at the script, and he agreed with Harv Bennett that people's revision was just not going to be workable. He asked for all of the prior drafts that they had come up with for the film, and then after reading them, he came up with a game plan on how they were going to proceed. So Meyer and Bennett and Salen, they set about making a list of every element that they liked from all of the previous drafts, and they would come up with a new screenplay that incorporated all of them. After Meyer officially came on board, Paramount would announce the film would receive a theatrical release in the summer of 1982 in the United States. So Meyer, as I mentioned, like Bennett, he was not very familiar with the TV show, so he was given a few episodes to get him up to speed by Bennett, and he started to get the gist of Star Trek, and it reminded him of something from his youth. He called it a futuristic version of C.S. Forrester's Horatio Hornblower novels. Roddenberry actually has admitted that Horatio Hornblower was an influence on Star Trek. But now he had 12 days to complete the final draft. So Meyer ended up treating Star Trek II in his mind as one of those seafaring adventures, except set in outer space. He was going to put in literary allusions, including most famously Moby Dick, but also Robinson Crusoe, Paradise Lost, 
and King Lear, although those are not all seafaring adventures, he felt that a lot of the elements would come into play in the course of the movie. In addition to King Lear, the script would carry a Shakespearean subtitle. He wanted it to be called Star Trek II, The Undiscovered Country, in reference to the famous soliloquy done by Hamlet. The Undiscovered Country was his reference to death and possibly the afterlife. The studio incensed Meyer, though, later by changing that subtitle of The Undiscovered Country to the more provocative one called The Vengeance of Khan. It later, of course, ended up becoming The Wrath of Khan, and that was because Lucasfilm complained that Star Trek Vengeance would confuse audiences with the upcoming Star Wars film, Star Wars Revenge of the Jedi. They also later changed their title because Jedis don't get revenge. They changed it to Return of the Jedi. The Undiscovered Country, though, would be used as a subtitle in a future Star Trek film called Star Trek VI, which was also directed by Nicholas Meyer. Now, Meyer, for his film, reimagined James T. Kirk as a flawed figure. He cheated certain death in a simulation. He disregarded Federation regulations when he wanted to. He put career over family. He never cared about an enemy that he exiled. Those flaws come with costs and lessons learned, humility that is earned the hard way. Kirk has to realize his own mortality. He's always found a way to escape death in his past, but as he grows older, the inevitability of his demise grows tangible. Now, in contrast, Khan is beyond such introspection. His woes are blamed on one man and one man alone. Khan is the representation of Kirk's arrogance and his defiance and his hubris if they were left entirely unchecked. And from here, Meyer introduced into the script more themes, aging, friendships, death, sacrifice, and rebirth. Even though he wrote that final script, he graciously gave writing credit to Harve Bennett, However, the Writers Guild of America, they were pretty stingy about bestowing that honor to a producer. So, Jack B. Swords received screenplay honors alone, despite not working on that final draft at all. Now, during all this time, you notice that I did not mention one name, and that is Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek. Creative control was entirely stripped from Roddenberry this time out. Paramount blamed him for a lot of the production issues that were associated with Star Trek The Motion Picture. They weren't going to let him interject himself all over this one. So they initially started by rejecting his script idea for a follow-up to the first film. He had this idea of having Klingons use time travel and coming back to Earth's past to interfere with the Kennedy assassination that was going to affect the future. They weren't keen on making that film, but they did fear his godlike respect among Star Trek fans. They wanted to keep him from bad-mouthing the sequel. They didn't want him to call it illegitimate, so they made him an executive consultant. They gave him a producer's salary and a share in the profits so that he would have a vested interest in promoting the film to what they considered to be the right circles. Harve Bennett kept Roddenberry in the loop, but he didn't really need his approval for any decisions. Roddenberry, in general, for the series, regarded most decisions not his own as wrong for the series. He did see Bennett as unfit to lead Star Trek. In Roddenberry's mind, Paramount was giving control to people unfamiliar with Star Trek. They didn't even have a science fiction perspective. These people would destroy Star Trek by ignoring the people who cared most, so all he was going to offer was contempt for their decisions. What drew the most derision from Roddenberry in particular was the death of Spock. 
Roddenberry insisted that this was entirely the wrong course. Shortly after he learned of this, Bennett and Paramount began to receive angry letters from Trekkers promising a boycott if Spock dies. Bennett and Paramount assumed Roddenberry had been the obvious leak. Fans, though, were not informed that either Spock died or Nimoy was not going to be returning. So no Nimoy, perhaps there wasn't even going to be a movie. So Paramount ended up having to address this leak when it hit the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Paramount's official position was that they were still working on the script. They really had not decided Spock's ultimate fate. They wanted to defuse the blowback, and they claimed that multiple endings would end up getting shot, and they would see what they wanted to go with. This was never the case, by the way. Myers ended up only going with one ending. Unfortunately, all of these excuses misled fans into concluding that it was Nimoy who insisted that Spock die. So they ended up targeting him and his family instead. There was kind of a silver lining to all of the blowback directed toward Nimoy. The fan furor, the threats, they made Nimoy realize just how much his character meant to so many. He ended up consenting to allow enough ambiguity for the character to return, possibly for future entries. Now, if Roddenberry was the one stirring the pot, fans might boycott. So Bennett used whatever clout he had to try to keep control of his own vision. And he was also able to keep the studio supporting him despite all of the ruckuses that Roddenberry would kick up against rampant revisionism. Nevertheless, now the cat was out of the bag as far as Spock's death. It could no longer be used for the desired shock value. So Nicholas Meyer had this notion to move Spock's death to the beginning of the film so the audiences would not be distracted the rest of the way expecting it. Bennett, though, he knew that Spock's sacrifice had to be at the climax of the film because everything afterward might seem anticlimactic by comparison. Meyer's suggestion did give Harv Bennett an idea, though. He thought that not Spock, but the entire Enterprise crew should die at the beginning of the film, but would be revealed to be just a simulation punctuated by Kirk cheekily asking Spock when he revived, aren't you dead? He felt this scene would throw some viewers off that the death that they heard about was maybe not real after all, and they would be genuinely surprised when it did occur again in the climax. Now, they were pushing forward for this. They still had not even asked Ricardo Montalban if he was going to agree to be in the film. They sent the script to Montalban, and he did agree to return as Khan as long as they worked around his schedule doing seasons of Fantasy Island. The actor was sent a video cassette of Space Seed and an edition of Moby Dick to use as inspiration. Now, in this film, it's set 15 years later, coincidentally 15 years after the original episode as well. SETI Alpha 5 is a desert planet now, after a cataclysmic event. They are mistaken for a barren planet. It's the intended site for the next experiment of the Federation's Genesis Project. This project is a bomb of sorts that transforms an uninhabited planet into this lush, inhabitable paradise. A Federation cruiser that's piloted by Chekhov, Walter Koenig's character, he must confirm that there is no existing life on the planet. That's where they discover Khan and several of his surviving clan. By the way, that surviving clan is mostly played by Chippendale dancers. Khan now has an escape craft, which he uses to seek revenge on the man who put him there, James T. Kirk. And that kicks off this duel of strength and cunning between these mortal enemies. Now, Star Trek II had a budget one quarter of its predecessor, but they still had a lot of expectations here. They knew that two disappointing Star Trek films might actually end the franchise's viability going forward. They were resolute in not repeating the mistakes of the first film. The second film here is tighter. On the screen and off, sets, 
props, models, many were repurposed from the first film, as well as from the defunct effort to revive the television series back in the 70s. The Bridge of the Reliant was merely a reconfiguration of the Enterprise's bridge. Lighting ended up having to reduce to save some costs, and they were used to reflect the darker thematic undercurrents of the story. And despite running a tight ship, the film still ran slightly over schedule and budget, but it was light years better than going from a $2 million film like the original Star Trek film to $46 million and then not finishing it in time for promotional screenings. Now, as far as continued casting, lifelong Star Trek fan Kirstie Alley, she gets her first significant acting role here as Lieutenant Savick. She's the first character introduced into Star Trek that was not created by Gene Roddenberry in some form or fashion. That character was mostly a backup plan to replace Spock if Nimoy chose not to reprise the role in the future. Excised footage does reveal some character elements cut from the final film, including Savick being half Romulan. That kind of explains why she shows some emotion in this film. A romantic moment between Savick and David Marcus, revealed to be Kirk's son in this film, that was excised as were most scenes involving a character called Peter Preston, Scotty's nephew. He's the one who Scotty carries on board, having been burned to death in the engineering room. There were a lot more scenes involving that character. Now, these scenes were trimmed out of Meyer's original cut because he wanted to give it tighter pacing. Some of those scenes are restored in the Director's Edition DVD re-edit that Meyer made after the fact. To counteract some of the backlash that they were receiving from Star Trek fans, there was a final scene involving Spock's casket seen on the Genesis planet, followed by Nimoy reading the Star Trek monologue, Space, The Final Frontier. That was tacked on by the studio, it was directed by Robert Allen, the producer, at Golden Gate Park in San Francisco two months after the wrap because some test audiences were reacting negatively to the downbeat ending, so they suggested leaving the character's fate as much more ambiguous. Now, these additions were initially despised by Nicholas Meyer, but he has, over the years, come to embrace their inclusion. Following the film's release, there was a joke that became a rumor, and that rumor became nearly a fact that the third film would be titled Star Trek III In Search of Spock. That was kind of a joke referencing Nimoy's television show called In Search Of. Obviously, we know it came to be called The Search for Spock. They left the door open here for fans and for Nimoy on the hope that he would reconsider. Now, if you heard my last episode, you know that the actors hated the design and colors of the space pajamas, as they called them, of Star Trek The Motion Picture. For his movie, Meyer reimagined Starfleet uniforms as similar to the U.S. Navy. They would be utilitarian and militaristic in design, and each would be specific to the types of Navy occupations held by those who wore them. Due to the budget, though, they couldn't afford all new uniforms, so they ended up altering and dyeing uniforms from the first film, Dark red seemed to be the color that photographed best, so most of the crew were dark red. Roddenberry did have qualms, though, about the Federation operating as a military operation as Meyer had dictated. He felt that this flew in the face of Star Trek's traditionally optimistic approach to space exploration. The Federation, he said, was modeled after NASA, not the U.S. Navy. However, Meyer and Bennett were committed to the themes and the nautical literary illusions that they had in mind. So they were going to go forward with it because they felt that the show really had a lot of elements of naval command. 
A newcomer was brought in to compose the score. His name was James Horner. Obviously, we know him very famously today. He replaced the pricier Jerry Goldsmith, who they could not afford anymore. Meyer wanted a seafaring emphasis to Horner's score. He wanted it also to be darker and more energetic than the kind of whimsical, ethereal one used for Star Trek The Motion Picture. Initially, this score met without all of the accolades that Jerry Goldsmith received for The Motion Picture, but nowadays, that score by Horner is regarded just as highly as Goldsmith's contributions. Roddenberry did warn the producers of an inconsistency between this story and the original show story. This is primarily during the scene when Khan recognizes Pavel Chekhov. Roddenberry pointed out that Chekhov was not in Space Seed because Walter Koenig was not on that show. He didn't appear until season two. The producers felt, you know, audiences are just not going to care that much. However, they underestimated Star Trek fans and their commitment to the show. They did receive considerable backlash from fans for that blunder. Vonda McIntyre's novelization of The Wrath of Khan does explain this. It's revealed in the novelization that Chekhov worked for the Enterprise's night shift, so he was not on the bridge and did not have the on-screen interaction with Khan at that time. As far as the vibe behind the scenes, a lot of the tension that permeated the first film dissipated for Star Trek II. The actors started having fun. They thought they had a great script. They liked their expanded roles here. The crew had a lot of confidence in Nicholas Meyer and his vision. He was emphasizing a great story over trying to placate Star Trek fans. Meyer himself had a fun sense of humor and a good rapport with the actors. And all of that ended up finding its way onto the screen. The joviality also helped complete the film on this tight budget easing the boredom of performing on the same tiny set nearly every day, and the camaraderie that was felt again by the cast would be another reason Nimoy began to have second thoughts on his final closure to Star Trek. Now, although Star Trek II seems a pretty simple story of dueling passions and vengeance, it is deceptively one of the most original and intelligent Star Trek chapters ever made, whether small or large screen. Kirk here, he has a worthy nemesis, Both men pitted against each other in this chess match of aggression. Neither is particularly mindful of the rules when winning is concerned. Montalban is terrific as Khan. He's surprisingly three-dimensional, and this ranks among his most exceptional work. I guess some people might claim him to be a little bit hammy here at times, but I think it's in perfect keeping with the space opera that is Star Trek. And Shatner, that we know and love, is hammy too. I think it makes it all the more fun. Fresh writing here. Swift direction. Solid acting by a lot of the performers. I think Shatner has never been finer in a Star Trek role. Brilliant plotting. It all makes this the best of the series, the best Star Trek ever made for many viewers. It's also the film that features the most memorable ending, Spock's sacrifice for the good of the many. You will believe that a man without emotions can evoke many a tear in a viewer's eye. As for Kirk... He's a man who ends up maturing, as in no other story told before in Star Trek history. He has a story here that alters his character's course into this new and welcome dimension. He's not growing old. He's growing up. He embraces those things that end up mattering. Friendship, family, honor, duty. He feels young again by the end, having something to look forward to building upon, rather than looking back at what was and what no longer is. Now, just as the first film ended up besting Superman to have the biggest opening weekend of all time, The Wrath of Khan also bested the record from a Superman film, Superman 2. It scored $14.5 million in its first week. That was a record. 
when it was all said and done, it would end up with nearly $79 million domestically. That's not including the worldwide box office take. And that placed it as the eighth highest grossing film in the U.S. for 1982. And that clearly sent the message that Spock, he might die, but Star Trek would still live long and prosper. Spock's death did allow the Enterprise to survive in the film. And so, too, did it allow Star Trek to survive as a property. It renewed interest to wavering fans, and it introduced a lot of new ones to the fold. Star Trek II is essential viewing, in my opinion, for even the most casual observer of Star Trek, and maybe even for those who are not. You don't have to be a Star Trek fan to appreciate Star Trek II. It's a great movie. And for that, I will give it four stars out of four. Four stars on my scale means that I think this is an excellent movie. Even if you haven't seen Star Trek before, I do recommend you give it a try. And maybe you will become a Star Trek fan. It is that fantastic of a film. And one I've watched a lot over the years. I'm a huge fan of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And for that, I give it four stars. If you have your own thoughts on Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan that you want to impart... You can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. You can find links to my Twitter feed, Facebook page, Instagram, and my email, plus those 4,000 other reviews. Check it all out at quipster.net. Next week, of course, we're going to be continuing on with that aforementioned Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. came out in 1984, and we'll find out for sure whether Spock lives or dies in that. I think it's a no-brainer, even if you haven't seen that film, whether he will come back. But I do encourage you to check that film out so you can get my thoughts on it on the next episode. Until next time, thanks so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world, around SETI Alpha 5, around Regula 1, and all across the galaxy in 80s movies. (laughs) 